Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Southern Spectre Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah, and as always, welcome. On today's show, we'll discuss Charleston's most infamous hotel keeper, and we'll dine with the dead. I'd like to start a new segment of the show first, entitled, From the Jukebox. Now, what this is, is I would like to showcase and highlight different singers, songwriters, composers, recording artists, what have you, from the south, uh, from the southern regions of the United States, and those also that sound, you know, that have that southern sound. So, I hope it's a segment you guys enjoy, and to kick that off, we have our very first artist, uh, singer, songwriter, recording artist, Ryan Sinclair. Now, Ryan Sinclair is from Richmond, Kentucky, and how I actually found her was I was on YouTube doing, trying to do some research for this particular episode, and I came across a song entitled Lavinia Song. Now, this, this song, Lavinia Song, actually comes from an album entitled The Legend of Lavinia Fisher, which actually shares the same name as today's show. Now, I really enjoyed this song, and it fit perfectly for this episode, and I couldn't be happier. So I reached out to uh, Ryan Sinclair, and she actually allowed me to uh, borrow her music and her work for today, and I'm going to share that with you here shortly. But first, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Ryan herself. Um, She started music at a young age, and uh, she has really progressed into an ever-moving, ever-changing career, and I wish her the best of luck with that. Also, too, Ryan, thank you so much for allowing me to use your work. I cannot express that enough. Now, according to the story um, on her website, from what I found, was that apparently she used to spend her summers down uh, near Charleston off of Kiowa Island, and I guess one summer she made her way to Charleston, and she actually took a ghost tour of the old city jail there in Charleston. And she she heard the story of Lavinia Fisher. And she was just so encapsulated and enthralled with Lavinia Fisher's story that she actually went away from there and she composed an entire album from that story. And I just thought it was the greatest thing I had ever discovered right then and there, especially pertaining to this podcast. So, the name of the song, uh, like I've already mentioned, is Lavinia Song, and it comes from the album, The Legend of Lavinia Fisher. So, with that being said, I ask and I urge each and every one of you listening to go check out uh, Ryan's social media and her YouTube. You can find her on Instagram, at Ryan Sinclair Music. And Ryan is actually spelled R-H-Y-A-N. So on Instagram, at Ryan Sinclair Music. You can also find her on Twitter, at Ryan Sinclair. You can also check out our website, which is ryansinclair.com. So do me a big favor and go check her out because, like I said, um, she I really do appreciate her allowing me to use her uh, her song and her work today. And I cannot express that enough. So, without further ado, I'd like to present to you Miss Ryan Sinclair performing Lavinia's song. Enjoy. 
guys i hope you really enjoyed that song as much as i did um also i forgot go check her out on facebook as well ryan sinclair also a fun fact is that ryan actually went back after she wrote the album and she went back to the old city jail and she actually recorded her music video for lavinia's song in uh in the old city jail there so if uh go go on youtube and check out that video i'm pretty sure you'll enjoy it Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to pull up a chair, settle in, and cozy up for the Southern Spectre Podcast.
we continue our journey moving ever southbound, leaving Polly's Island in our wake. We'll pass through the towns of Georgetown, North Santee, McClellanville, Alwanda, and into Mount Pleasant, which sits just slightly north of Charleston. We'll soon come to the Arthur Ravenel Jr. Bridge, the Ravenel Bridge for short, and also known as the Cooper River Bridge. The bridge broke ground in 2001 and was officially completed and opened for use in 2005. It connects Mount Pleasant to Charleston and is the third largest cable stayed bridge in the Western Hemisphere at a length of 1,546 feet. Journeying across the bridge toward Charleston looking back to the left, you may be able to catch a glimpse of the USS Yorktown permanently stationed here at Patriots Point. The one thing you'll notice immediately coming into Charleston is the eclectic architectural styles that can be found throughout the city, including Georgian, Greek Revival, Gothic Revival, Queen Anne, Charleston Single House, and Art Deco. Charleston was founded in 1670 and was originally known as Charlestown after King Charles II. Charlestown was once deemed the capital of South Carolina and was originally located on the Ashley River, but was moved in 1680 to its current location, which is now known as downtown Charleston. Early settlers came from England, but were soon followed here by new immigrants from Ireland, France, Scotland, Germany, and of course, they brought with them new religions. It's because of this that Charleston was bestowed the moniker of the Holy City. It became known for its sufferance of various religions and the number of churches it housed. Now Charleston has more than its fair share of hotels, beds and breakfasts, inns, and resorts. The beginning of the hotel or inn can be traced all the way back to biblical times when of course Mary and Joseph could not find room in the inn. If you look up hotel in the Oxford Dictionary, you'll find the following an establishment providing accommodation, meals, and other services for travelers and tourists. The origin of the word hotel itself comes from the old French word hostel, which eventually evolved into hotel with modern English. Christianity was on the rise during the Middle Ages, and traveling to many religious monasteries and abbeys became more and more common. Those traveling to such destinations could find a place for rest at these newly founded inns. The inn and hotels of this bygone era would offer guests a meal and a bed. They also had stables, taverns, and rooms would often be shared between guests. Soon, inns became more and more popular, and they began to offer their guests more accommodations, especially catering to those traveling in coaches. These offered rooms, food, tending to the horses, as well as the coach itself. Over the years, many versions of the hotel have come along offering their guests all kinds of services to make their travels less worrisome and more enjoyable. Of course, with the rise of this industry, it began to make its way across the globe, and eventually made its way south. One such place, known as the Six Mile Wayfarer House, outside the city of Charleston, would soon be offering guests accommodations of a different kind. Folks around the area would soon realize that the Six Mile House was something far more sinister. Travelers could check in, but they couldn't check out. This is the legend 
of Lavinia Fisher. Now, Lavinia Fisher and her husband, John Fisher, lived outside of Charleston, and they operated a hotel entitled Six Mile Wayfarer House in the 1800s. Now, it was widely known throughout the surrounding areas that Lavinia was both alluring and a pleasure to be in her company, which of course aided toward the hotel's business. Soon, reports began to circulate of men who would up and vanish without a trace, and word on the street was that most of these men were last seen at the Six Mile House. Local authorities soon launched their investigation, but due to John and Lavinia Fisher's reputation in the local community, and no evidence being found that would involve the Fishers, the inquiry, of course, was dropped. Of course, over time, more men began to disappear. In 1819, locals took the law into their own hands, with a vigilant mob who confronted the Fishers about their goings-on. Now, it seemed to be believed by some locals that Lavinia and John were somehow sedating the men who rented a room at the Six Mile House and sometime during the night, after the medicinal effects of whatever was given to the poor souls had taken hold, John or Lavinia would make their way inside their room and stab them in the chest while they slept. One theory suggests that the bed was wired and rigged to fall through a trap door onto a bed of spikes that would drive themselves through the sleeping victim's back. Unclear of what the locals said or did, they seemed to be content with their results. As the mob dispersed, one man, David Ross, was left behind to stand guard over the area. David was attacked by a group of men and taken before Lavinia herself. She strangled him and mangled poor David's head. Whatever miracle occurred, David Ross managed to break free of his captors and made it back to town to notify the authorities. Shortly after Mr. Ross's escape, the Six Mile House gained a new occupant by the name of John Peoples, who happened to be traveling to Charleston. Of course, he was greeted by the gorgeous Lavinia, who invited him in. Lavinia offered John a cup of tea, and although he wasn't too fond of the stuff, he accepted but discarded it behind her back. Lavinia inquired to John about a number of things. And of course, as beautiful and inviting as she was, John offered up all the information she requested. Later in his room, John felt like maybe he had divulged a little too much and soon became leery of the situation and for his safety. Feeling more comfortable in the chair rather than the bed, he propped himself up and eventually sleep took hold. Sometime during the night, John Peoples was startled awake by an extremely loud crash. He soon became aware that the bed he was intended to sleep on was now residing in a deep hole beneath the floor. John quickly fled the Six Mile House on horseback and made his way to the Charleston police. John and Lavinia Fisher were soon arrested for their crimes of murder and robbery. The police unearthed more than enough evidence to link the couple to the missing travelers. Of course, a plea of not guilty was entered into the courts by the evil duo, and the couple were hauled off to what is now the Old City Jail in Charleston. The jury saw right through their not guilty pleas, but were found guilty of a number of crimes, including murder and robbery, and sentenced to hang. 
Now, there are claims that Lavinia pleaded with the judge in reference to a statute that was in place at the time in the state of South Carolina, which stated that married women could not be hanged. Lavinia stood up on her day in court and expressed this to the judge. Legend says the judge responded to her with the fact that he had thought long and hard prior to this day, and to correct the problem, he needed only to hang her husband first. After an appeal had been made for their conviction, they had to wait it out together in the city jail. They made an attempt at escape after a fashioning rope from the linens in their jail cell. John made it out, but the homemade rope had given way, leaving Lavinia alone in the cell. John dared not leave his Lavinia behind, so he made his way back to the cell, and they were kept under stronger security. The court soon dismissed the appeal, and the hanging would happen later that month. A local priest was sent to advise the couple to depart of their wicked ways. John talked to the priest time and time again. Lavinia, on the other hand, had hung it up and would have nothing to do with him. On February 18, 1820, the couple made their way down to the gallows. It was there that John Fisher made his final stand. John read a letter out loud that he himself had written to the crowd before him. He begged of his innocence and for mercy, claiming that he had been born again, and he asked for their forgiveness. John Fisher was hanged at the gallows that day. Lavinia, however, did not go so quietly. Legend says Lavinia showed up to the gallows in her white wedding dress. Some say she was hoping to catch the eye of a possible suitor to ask for her hand in marriage to save her from the gallows. Others say she was preparing to make herself Satan's bride. After the noose was placed around her neck, but before it could be tightened, she looked out onto the crowd and she yelled, If you have a message for the devil, give it to me. I'll see that he gets it. Then, beating the executioner to his job, she leapt from the gallows and swung for almost an hour before drawing her last breath. Lavinia Fisher was only 27 years old when she died. John and Lavinia were buried in a potter's field near the jail. Lavinia had made her way into the history books as the first female serial killer in the United States. Now over the years, folks have claimed to see Lavinia's restless spirit at the old city jail and the Unitarian Church. The old city jail, which is a likely scenario given the amount of time her and her husband John had been detained there. But as far as the Unitarian Church, her remains would not be there. But instead, she had been laid to rest in a potter's field cemetery that is now known as the Medical University of South Carolina. Now, I'm not suggesting people aren't seeing what they think they saw. It just very well may not have been Lavinia herself.
Now, Charleston is a booming city with no shortage of great restaurants. This is the South, after all. If you head over to 72 Queen Street, you may be in for some spirits with your meal. And no, not alcohol. Here, you'll find Pugin's Porch. To understand any story, we have to, of course, start at the beginning. Sometime around the 1900s, Zoe Amond, along with sister Elizabeth, stayed here at Pugin's Porch. Now, of course, it wasn't a restaurant way back then, just a home shared by two sisters. The sisters loved each other as most sisters do. Then, in 1945, Elizabeth passed away, and Zoe was devastated, alone, and became depressed. Now, some say Elizabeth's passing had such a resounding effect on Zoe that her mind started playing tricks on her. Zoe would often be heard calling for Elizabeth. Zoe lived out the rest of her day at St. Francis Hospital. Today, her final resting place can be found at St. Lawrence Cemetery. Now, some many years later, Bobby Ball purchased the home once occupied by Zoe and Elizabeth and turned the home into a restaurant still up and running even today. Bobby got the name for the restaurant from a neighborhood dog named Pugin that roamed the streets and loved to lay his hindquarters there on the porch, hence the name Pugin's Porch. Over the years, many of the restaurant's guests and staff have claimed to have all kinds of experiences. Zoe has been spotted a number of times, especially in the women's bathroom, located upstairs. Most folks who have had an encounter with Zoe say they didn't realize she was a ghost until seeing the old pictures of her on the establishment walls. Guests across the street at the Mills House Hotel claim to have seen Zoe waving to them from the restaurant's second floor windows. Rumor has it that your chances of catching a glimpse at Zoe increase late at night when the guests and staff have all gone home. So if you think you'd like to dine with Zoe, might want to make a reservation first as seating can be high in demand. Fried green tomatoes, shrimp and grits, she crab soup, country fried chicken, scallops, and sweet tea glazed salmon. These are just some of the many country dishes that Pugin's Porch can offer. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I'm getting a little bit hangry. I'd really appreciate it if one of y'all sent me a biscuit. Alright ladies and gentlemen, that's going to wrap up this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook at the Southern Spectre Podcast and on Instagram at the Southern Spectre. If you'd like to shoot me a message, send me an email at the Southern Spectre Podcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to share a song, story, or experience, just shoot me an email and maybe I'll share your content on the show. Join me next time as we continue our road trip down through the South Carolina Low Country, and our next destination is Edisto Island. And until next time, don't let the boo hag get you. <laughs>
which I have her permission to use on this episode. Thank you once again, Ryan, for allowing me to use your work. All other music during this episode was composed and recorded by Mayu, M-Y-U-U. You can find him on SoundCloud or YouTube. Sound effects include our eerie horror scene and monster snarling, composed and recorded by BlastWaveFX.com. Heartbeat, composed and recorded by Mike Koenig. Small Dog Barking, composed and recorded by Daniel Simeon. Thanks, guys, and tune in next time.